Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. You know, I've been asked many times, innocently, was it hard to open the D.C. kitchen? I mean, no one had ever done a job training school, a cooking school for the homeless. There was all these urban myths that it was illegal to donate food. But I'm a white dude in America. I mean, you know, what's hard? That's a really important construct because, you know, we talk a lot about privilege. You know, we rarely unpack that because one of the things that I was born with was the confidence of being a white dude in America. And I think people really, truly underestimate what it means to have confidence that your ideas are good and that if you just get in front of people, they'll hear you and they'll listen to you. Hello, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel podcast with yours truly, Light Watkins. In this episode, we're going to hear the story of Robert Egger, a California native who relocated to Washington, D.C., and on one fateful night, he found himself volunteering in the back of a truck feeding the homeless. And on the ride home with his wife, he became obsessed with using the resources and connections that he acquired while working in the nightclub business of all places to find innovative ways of taking perfectly good food that was being thrown away by restaurants all over town each night and using it to help feed even more hungry people. This idea led to what became a revolutionary nonprofit called the DC Kitchen, which is still in operation today. And as we've seen in many of these stories, Robert's seemingly normal background of coming up in the 1960s and 70s was quietly preparing him for his path as a renegade in the nonprofit sector. I've known Robert personally for a handful of years. He and I both delivered TEDx talks in Venice in 2014, and he's been a friend and mentor of mine ever since. I'm proud to share his fascinating story on the podcast, and I'm excited for you to hear it because I truly think that you will be changed by the end of this episode, and the way you look at food will forever be changed. As always, we're going to start with talking about young Robert and what he was into as a kid and how his earliest obsession with being in the nightclub industry led him toward founding this initiative to feed millions of people. Without further ado, I introduce to you Mr. Robert Egger. Robert, thank you again for joining At the End of the Tunnel. As always, I like to start by talking about childhood. And I was just curious, if you can remember, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? You know, dude, it's funny you mention that because I loved almost anything with wheels. I think I always wanted to be going and moving. And in particular, kind of uh, stretching the boundaries of where I could go. As a kid, I had, you know, like any kid, I had a bike and I loved having a bike because, I mean, it was the freedom to, again, leave your neighborhood and explore. But I also was, uh, you know, raised in Southern California during the 60s and had this interesting transformative moment between one of my favorite, favorite things, man. It's, you know, I had a skateboard like a lot of people back then. But it was funny because I came up in the era where you had uh, metal wheels and pretty much hardwired in piece of wood that had no ability to bank or pivot. And if you hit a rock on one of those metal wheels, I mean, even the smallest pebble sent you flying. And then, oh, <laughs> dude, it, I mean, it sounds funny, but it hurt. I mean, you know, dude, it's like so many things in life, but it was so much fun. You got back on. But then came out of right. nowhere, you had polyurethane wheels showed up. And I don't know what it was on the bottom of that, you know, kind of attached the wheels to the wood that allowed you to bank and pivot. But it was a revelation. And it's funny because I think that transition from something that was fun 
that could hurt to something that was fun and that was even more fun opened the door for that idea of that I think has been a big part of my life, which is just because something works now, it doesn't mean you can't make it a whole lot better. Right. I wonder that that early experience, if you can even remember this, did it make you feel more like taking more caution as you were trying to have fun or did it make you kind of more of a renegade? Like, I just know I'm just going to take the cuts and bruises with the journey. You know, man, I, I don't know whether it was the age too, because, you know, again, I think obviously I'm older than you, but I think we both came up in an age where we were put out to play. My yeah, mom put us out and it's like, don't <laughs> come home, you know, come home at dark. So there right. was an, uh, there was a sense of adventure and the lumps you took. And again, dude, I don't know how many trips to the uh, emergency room. I had, I had one as a kid. I mean, nothing bad, but I mean, you know, I had my share of, of stitches and it's almost uh-huh. like anything, man, in life. Once you get hit and you realize it doesn't hurt as much as you think it might, it doesn't mean you walk out and, right. and you know, ask somebody to hit you, but you're not as afraid. So, yeah, I, I think all that stuff right. really sharpened my sense of adventure and wanting to get out and do stuff. And what was the dynamic like growing up with your parents and you, your siblings? Was there was a home? Did it feel nurturing? Did you have kind of was it survival mentality? Like what, what was happening? No, I was pretty lucky, dude. I mean, you know, I was the first of six, and again, born in 1958, along with some interesting peers. Man, you know, Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, Ellen DeGeneres, who looks much younger than I do. But uh, it was a great time. Wow. And my parents stayed married till they passed. My dad was a Marine Corps pilot, and he was gone quite a bit. He did three tours of Vietnam. So I was raised in uh, surrounded by very strong women, my mother and then my four sisters. And my mother was a very demanding woman, not, you know, she just expected a lot of us and really pushed us to participate and not slack. But yeah, man, I mean, you know, we moved around a lot, which made me very... Our family, very insular. I mean, you know, I'm an outgoing person, but like I said, I've always respected and and felt comfortable around women because that's who raised me. Mm. And what happened when you were 10? You had a pivotal experience I wanted you to talk about. Well, you know, 10 was, I talk about this quite a bit in a lot of my work. Because again, I think even for younger people, it's, it's kind of a struggle to hear an older dude talk about back in the day. But 1968 was a pretty insane year, even as, as tough as this election year might seem to us who were in the middle of it, 68 was tough. I mean, you know, because you had Lyndon Johnson had pulled out and Robert Kennedy decided to jump in. And here I was living in Southern California and Robert Kennedy shows up and stands or sits actually with Cesar Chavez, who was finishing a 25 day fast to draw attention to the plight of migrant workers. And that was something that really struck me because here was an example of Robert Kennedy showing incredible solidarity and great political risk. But also, you know, I was raised Catholic and my mom was really impressed that Robert Kennedy helped Cesar break his fast with a piece of communion bread. And I remember her bringing that to my mm-hmm. attention and that really stuck with me, that image. But right after that, Dr. King was murdered and that was profound. And it, it was also one of those moments in life because I was playing with some kids. We were given the day off of school the next day and we we're outside and some construction workers kind of stopped us and asked, what are you all doing out of school? It was midweek. And I kind of innocently and, and kind of with a great sense of commitment said, you know, it's because Dr. King was assassinated. And dude, it was one of those things where I can so sadly remember the look on this guy's face and the kind of snarl in his voice when he said, you know, they let you out of school because they shot that N-word. And I was just like, I mean, I knew the word. It's not as if you didn't know it, but I'd never heard it like someone say it. I had read it. I had heard people reference it in the abstract, but I'd never heard the word itself, let alone spoken with such hatred. Mm. And it, it dude, to this day, it, it was such a pivotal thing. And then, of course, two months later, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So I think that year really is when I metaphorically kind of self-baptized and decided I know now what team I'm playing on and what I want to do with my life. Did you have a conversation with any of your your parents or any, any adults about that comment that this construction worker made that helped you sort of shape 
you say you self-baptize to sort of shape your understanding around what you were going to do next, or is that just an internal process that you felt you remember going through? You know, that's a, that's a great question, like, because no, I didn't. I don't think I would have repeated it. I mean, again, like I said, my mother really was a very committed civil rights. It was fascinating. Again, when I, when I often have, in hindsight, look back at her generation of women who were college educated, but who stayed at home to raise their kids. You know, she sat and raised us, but through the lens of the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the farm workers movement, the environmental movement. And even though she wasn't participatory that way in that she wasn't out marching or anything, I think that she really guided our education very much around the lens of the way you treat your fellow humans and the concept of respect. But no, dude, honestly, it's funny. I don't think I've ever thought about that light. I did. It was all internal. I mean, I just process it, you know, in my own little head. And as a child, because you were still very much a child at that point, were you watching the news? Were you getting your own information somewhere? Were you reading the newspapers on your own? Or were you kind of relying on the sort of narrative and the spin from your parents and how they interpreted this information about Chavez or about King or about Kennedy? Well, you know, it's funny, man, because as a young kid, we all watch the news. I mean, you know, every night you watch Walter Cronkite. And my mother, you know, we sat around the table at night and as both, and I was fascinated by my mother's kind of decision to do this because we had a children's Bible that got passed around from child to child from the oldest me down to my youngest baby sister, Shannon. And we read like a chapter every night. So it was both a reading exercise, a family thing, but it also opened the door to discussions about what does this mean? There was, I think, an effort by my mother to translate some of the things that were happening in the world via her biblical background, you know, her sense of religious faith. But at the same time, I also came up at a time when every neighborhood literally had a football team. There were so many kids and we all ran loose. And I grew up incredibly intrigued by my generational elders. You know, I am a baby boomer, but I'm almost 11 years into the first baby boomers born in 1946. So I'm 11, 12 years past the first boomer, but I'm part of that cohort. But I was watching my generational elders who were growing their hair, who were smoking cigarettes, you know, who were listening to incredible music. I mean, I remember vividly sitting in garages where some kid would bring home a new album. Uh, and in particular, I remember the Beatles pretty constant. But at the same time, another fascinating thing happened because I always really, really not only dug music, but I dug what I saw at the time as the social implications of music. Again, you go back to, and this was also a time when there were shows like Laugh In and Flip Wilson and the Smothers Brothers. And again, I know some of your younger listeners might not know that, but these were breaking barrier groups that were overtly on, you know, a very small bandwidth of three basic main TV stations, CBS, ABC, NBC. And they were talking about race and class and gender and the war and getting canceled. And, and that in and of itself was news. When one week your show is on and your family's sitting around watching it and your parents are laughing and, and weeks later you find out it's been canceled mm. because of the joke. People. So I became fascinated by the power of that medium. Mm-hmm. But, dude, you know, the most interesting is, is I aged a little bit more and continued on this trajectory of intense interest in social causes. There was one of these wild moments where, you know, my parents, I remember my father, and again, military dude, talking to his friends about politics and them kind of arguing and, and kind of talking about the issues of the day. Yet when my parents who had parties quite often would put on a Motown record, everybody danced. Mm. And A, I loved watching people dance and have fun. But I was, I, again, it's, there was some moment, I forget what little switch it was, that I just listened and it's like, wow, these people who are afraid of certain political ideas and the same ideas that got Dr. King and Robert Kennedy assassinated, murdered as young men. They were dancing to those same ideas put to music. I mean, again, the same thing that Marvin Gaye or a variety of other Motown artists were saying or were getting my parents' generation to dance. So at a very early age, this got me on this interesting trajectory of being fascinated by and really intrigued by the power of music to get people to hear things that politicians couldn't. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, 
thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And how did that end up playing out? You you obviously you know graduated from high school, and what happened next that kind of led you through this trajectory towards music? Well, you know what's wild, man is is in this time frame we moved from Southern California to Northern Virginia, which was a real rude awakening for a kid who really was raised and came of age in Southern California in the '60s, with all of the dynamism and excitement of that kind of culture. And here I was transported into, you know, rural Virginia with its, I think at the time and even still at times, you know, a very different culture. And my mother right. sensed how bummed I was. And of course, I think as a, a, any parent who moves quite often, I think is really tuned into their kids' aura and kind of what's going on, you know, with their children and, and how they people, transition. For people who don't know, this is the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Yeah, Exactly. So anyway, my mom said, hey, there's this movie I really love. Why don't we watch it together? And it was the movie Casablanca. And I was probably 14, I think. And this movie captivated me because there was a scene very early in which everybody was kind of the first time you see the, the Ricks, this nightclub that is where the majority of the movie takes place. And everyone's flooding in. You know, you haven't really seen Ricks yet. And the sun goes down, the moon comes up. Everybody starts to roar into this nightclub. And as I watched, here was from the kind of, if you'll go into cinematography, from this high shot down into the club, you could see Sam and his orchestra playing. You could see Sasha, the bartender, and Carl, the waiter, and all the people that you get to know later. But you got the sense of the swirl of Rick's and how everybody was there. But as they took a tighter shot in this tracking shot that went through the crowd of people that in a distance were just having fun. You started to hear their conversations, the intimacy, and everyone was whispering to each other, plotting to get out of Casablanca to America and the freedom that it represented in this movie. And as a kid, I became fascinated because, again, I already was hip to the power of music. And I was intrigued by the idea of nightclubs because, again, when you watch movies as a kid, so many older movies, particularly musicals, took place in, in nightclubs. So I was already fascinated by that culture. And here was this idea of this super highly functioning nightclub that gave these refugees the freedom of a night out. I mean, the momentary respite of being a refugee in northern Africa. Yet what they were all seeking and what this club was really was a doorway to this deeper freedom of America. So that duality of purpose, the idea that you could have a nightclub that functioned at every level, but right below the surface, like a Trojan horse. There was this kind of diabolical, larger purpose to free people. Dude, that just, I don't know what it was. I don't know what happened in my little brain, but it's like, dude, I'm going to open a nightclub. And much to my Marine Corps father's chagrin, his firstborn child, his male son, his only <laughs> son at the time, suddenly you know, decided I'm going to open a nightclub. And dude, that's all I talked about. I mean, I was really fixated on this. Mm -hmm. And I remained fixated. I mean, I barely 
graduated high school, I was sneaking out every night, running into DC to see clubs. And uh, mm-hmm. again, I was fixated on this idea of when I am liberated from the drudgery of school. And dude, I was a, a horrible student. I think back then I probably would have been diagnosed with some kind of random thing, but you know, I just, my brain doesn't learn analytically. So whenever they say open the book to page 10, in particular with math, my brain just, just shut down. Did you, um, know, did you know anyone who had a nightclub or did you have any sort of mentors in that area? Or were you just kind of, did you go to a place that no, you really it, admired other than seeing Rick? No, it was just fantasy. It was this image. But dude, again, it was this weird two crossroads came together for me. One was, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I used the term self-baptized, but I really would love your listeners to recognize that that word, at least coming up in the faith I did, that's a serious word. And what I meant is I, I truly was deeply, deeply fascinated and studied as a kid liberation movements. You know, I was glued to anything that my parents and their generation didn't like, I wanted to learn more about. So I was just a sponge. Again, like I said, I couldn't learn. And it's funny, dude, now that I think it out loud, I just said, I can't learn out of a book, but it's maybe because I didn't want to learn that shit, (laughs) but because I learned a lot of stuff out of books. I mean, I was devouring things like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee or Soul on Ice or Autobiography of Malcolm X or a variety of different things that I wanted to learn about that. So it's funny. I never really thought about that, that I actually did learn a lot out of books. I've always pegged myself as somebody who couldn't learn analytically, but I guess in hindsight, it was because the subjects didn't appeal to me. Yet the liberation stuff really did. So that idea of being part of a movement. Now, I have to also understand, I grew up totally impressed by and desperately wanting to be a hippie. You know, to me, when I watched, whether it was, again, I I know your listeners who are young are going to be like, these are pop references that are obscure, but there's a show called The Mod Squad, you know, that was like one of these first kind of interracial shows where there were three young, they were cops, but there was this dude, Link, who was like the African-American cop. But anyway, there was just, there were so many people that I saw that it's like, I just want to be part of this bigger movement. I want, I, I want to grow up and go out and protest the war. I want to grow up and go to concerts. I want to grow up and be part of a generation that is out in the street fighting for things. But when I came of that age, it was actually quite disappointing light. And it, it influenced me in a huge way because I watched that generation for, you know, at the time I, I couldn't figure out why, but they seemingly abandoned these causes. And as the seventies really unfolded, what the daring of music gave way to the the seeming frivolity of disco and leisure suits and cocaine and fun and parties. And to my young eyes, this was kind of a level of hypocrisy and almost betrayal of a sense of duty and obligation. I mean, again, I looked at my generational elders and it's like, WTF? I mean, what happened to you all? You all were the people I aspired to be. And now you've you become these almost comical figures in your yellow leisure suits. I just don't get it. So there was a, a sense of betrayal, quite honestly, that was, I think, there was a momentary sense of, of it being adrift and not knowing who my people were anymore, you know, who was fighting for a sense of liberation and stuff. And then suddenly punk rock came up and that suddenly music that was loud, music that was fun, music that was political. And dude, I was off to the races. That combination of I graduated high school, I found my sound, my parents retired and split. So at age 17, I'm like, I love you all so much, but now is my time. I'm staying here in DC and I'm going to go in and get a job running nightclubs. And that began a very long and joyful journey of my 20s running nightclubs. So you were a bartender at a club, and then you ended up on this truck called the Great Patrol. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And I know there was a special someone that came into your life in between that moment and you being on that truck. So just kind of tell us how that whole trajectory played out. Because it seems like the last place you'd end up after being a bartender at a nightclub. Well, you know, it's funny, dude, because A, I always wanted to be in love. 
I love the whole concept of love. And I love the whole idea of, I, I was always ready to be married, to be a partner. And it wasn't like I was looking, I mean, I had my share of relationships, but I was tending bar at the Child Herald, a beautiful little nightclub in DC, little teeny townhouse. But it's where Bruce Springsteen had his first show in DC. The Ramones had their first show. But anyway, the door opened. And as I've said many times, man, Claudia walked in, ordered a drink and stole my heart. And I, I was just in love with this woman. But anyway, I was both courting Claudia, but also pursuing my nightclub education. You know, I was not random about working in a nightclub. And I, I was a voracious student of the business and the business being both the music industry, but also, see, I, I wanted to do something different with my club. I wanted to put on shows. I didn't want to rely on the audience for one particular band to fill a nightclub up at night. And I wanted to do shows. Again, I didn't want to hope a band talked about politics. I wanted to deeply embed issues into shows. So my vision for a nightclub always involved much more of a variety show format, right? So I'm studying that and I'm studying Claudia. And at the same time, though, man, as the 80s started to unfold, the issue of homelessness started to really appear. Now, again, man, there's always been people on the fringe. But now here we were in the nation's capital where I lived. And here were people sleeping on steam grates all over the downtown. And, it, you know, first it was primarily men, but then women and then, dude, families. And so this issue was so profound. And, you know, I was walking to work every night, going to my nightclub gig, walking past people and thinking about this. And at the same time, you know, Claudia and I decided, OK, man, let's get married. And there was a little church around the corner from the nightclub I was working at the time in Georgetown. And it was funny, man, because this nightclub, the last nightclub I worked in was a jazz club, which wasn't my gig, but that's where rich people went. And I wanted to learn about that. And here I was seeing literally dudes, Sarah Vaughn, Oscar Peterson, Mel Torme, the modern jazz quartet. I mean, it was a, an insane education to go from all of the kind of icons of punk rock to the last generation of touring jazz greats. But anyway, I'm walking home and I see this little church and, and we make an appointment and go in. And the pastor there says, yeah, man, I, I'll marry you too. You know, 50 bucks, which for us was the right, the magic number. <laughs> but he said, uh, you know, one of the things you might want to do is come out on our great patrol and, and go out and serve people on the street. And dude, all I wanted to do was get married. And so and I went out, I went out anyway. But I've told the story many, many times, but it was a fascinating night because here we were. We cooked a bunch of food that was purchased at this incredibly expensive grocery store. We loaded all this stuff into a truck that bounced down the road on a rainy night and stopped first in front of the World Bank then across the street from the White House and serve people who had lined up as they did dutifully night after night for this truck to show up. And here they were out in the rain. And at one level, I was having a, a great time. It's like, this isn't so bad. This feels good. But at the same time, you know, I'm looking at people outside in the rain and the driver of the truck called them each and knew everybody by name and was saying, you know, see you tomorrow night, see you tomorrow night. And that just, that kind of echoed. And it was as if that kind of 11-year-old kid was standing behind me saying, dude, you know, this is people in your own backyard who are outside in the rain. And it was this moment I've described in which I really saw charity in America for what it is, which is sadly, you know, it's based on the redemption of the giver, not the liberation of the receiver. And that moment was just kind of that, uh, an interesting clarity. Now, again, dudes, for your listeners, this wasn't like my life changed that night. I just on the way home rattled off to Claudia, who was a legal secretary and used to taking dictation. And she was taking notes. And I'm just like, dude, let me just, you know, I just spilled this out. But it's like, if you could go to the restaurants, the hotels, the caterers around this town and get the food that they throw away at the end of the night, which was, again, as I mentioned earlier, I studied the business. And that was part of our business model. There was a certain amount of food that got thrown away. And it was accepted. And I thought, wow, you know, here's maybe an interesting way in which you can feed more people better food for less money. You can get that food and you can feed people food that's really luxurious, nice food versus lentil soup or whatever night after night. But what was the big leap was, you know, I said the smarter idea, though, is to offer those men and women a chance to get out of the rain and be part of the solution. I mean, I had so many conversations with people that night who were clearly lucid and capable. And so I just proposed, you know, we should start a cooking school. Restaurants have jobs too. And, you know, anybody who's worked in a restaurant and your audience knows, man, restaurant kitchens are the island of misfit toys. 
So it's like, <laughs> why not use that food as a way to not just nourish people, but liberate people via their ability to be part of the solution? They can get a skill. People get fed. The restaurants that donate food now get access to entry-level people. I thought it was a great idea. And so a couple of weeks later, I had written it up and asked that very same priest who was going to marry us to see if some of the other churches and synagogues that took turns serving people via this great patrol, if we could meet. And I proposed this idea of a central kitchen and a cooking school. And due to my shock, <laughs> I was told everyone seemed to go out of their way to try and find a way to shoot down this idea. And up to the point where it's like this moment where you're like, oh, wow, they're not going to do this. And they're not going to do it because it kind of rocks their boat. And it was kind of an interesting, sad realization that their construct of, of why this needed to stay the same was because it worked for them. Mm. And again, it's one of many moments in my life in which I've tried to be respectful, but I've been kind of disappointed in people who I assume would be share this kind of by any means necessary attitude of getting people out of a position where they needed charity. At that point, were you thinking of it as a part-time sort of hobby, passion type of a thing? Or were you, when you were pitching it to them, or were you thinking, we'll all do it together and I'll just keep running the bar and I'll do this on the side? Or were you thinking that this is something that's going to essentially take over my life? Well, you know, I had a ton of energy, dude. I was a young man and I had days free. So I figured, you know, I might be able to cook during the day. I was willing to roll up my sleeves, but my destiny was opening the greatest nightclub in the world. Uh -huh. as, as I would tell anyone who ever asked me, I was, dude, I was laser focused on this idea of I'm going to open the greatest nightclub in the world since I was a teenager. So, I mean, it had been probably 11 years that I had been, you know, working nightclubs and, and building towards this idea. Had you been saving money for that nightclub or did you have anything in the, in no, the works? Dude, I, was, I was a bartender and Claudia was a secretary. We didn't have any money, but my money, my gold was my ideas and my skill and my pedigree. I mean, I had a good run, dude. I, you know, I really worked in some of the best clubs and managed these clubs and ran their business and booked their bands. I mean, so I was working my way up to be an undeniable pro. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but I mean, never in a million years did I think. And in fact, even after I started DC Kitchen, my assumption was, you know, look, dude, I'm doing this because no one else would. It was interesting, dude, because, you know, a lot of people were also skeptical of my idea about a nightclub that would put on shows. I mean, don't forget, this was also the beginning of the DJ era. And most mm -hmm. investors were like, dude, why do you want to have a big old band when you can just pay one dude to play some records, put up a VIP thing and sell exclusivity and jealousy and all that. You're just trying to sell love. Greed's where the money's at. <laughs> this was also that era of Wall Street, you know, and that movie right. where greed is good. So there was an element of, you know, look, I'm going to, I'm going to get this kitchen going because dude, it's not that hard. And again, my model was everything I use. And frankly, the model I ended up leading for decades is based exclusively on what's already there. So all I said was, look, I'm going to take food that's available free. I'm going to use an underutilized kitchen. I'm going to offer men and women who are undervalued, who want to get out of the trap of the streets. I'm going to offer volunteers who have free labor, a place they can come and really make something bold happen. I'm going to offer chefs who have food that they hate to throw away. And I can give them a tax deduction for it. And they can come and help teach and get access to entry-level people. Everything was there. All I did and all I've usually ever done is reorganize existing things to get better, more just and dynamic results. Yeah, it makes perfect sense today. So when you pulled all that together and you went out and I'm sure you pitched it to other people because you had to secure a truck, you had to find the space, you had to call up the uh, George H. Bush's people to work out how to collaborate with them for their inauguration. Was it a obvious winning idea to all those people at the time? Or did you have to kind of do gymnastics to try to, and jujitsu to get people to buy into your vision? Yeah, but you know, dude, this is an interesting moment to transition a little bit in this kind or branch out in our conversation, because, you know, I've been asked many times, innocently, was it hard to open the DC kitchen? I mean, no one had ever done a job training school, a cooking school for the homeless. There was all these urban myths that it was illegal to donate food. But I'm a white dude in America. I mean, mm. you know, what's hard? That's a really important construct because 
you know, we talk a lot about privilege. You know, we rarely unpack that because one of the things that I was born with was the confidence of being a white dude in America. And I think people really, truly underestimate what it means to have confidence that your ideas are good and that if you just get in front of people, they'll hear you and they'll listen to you. You know, as a kid, man, there was a famous moment on TV that I remember so vividly when Muhammad Ali was interviewed mm-hmm. and he was talking about all of these examples. He's like saying, you know, man, Tarzan in the middle of the jungle, he yells, a whole tribe of black people run. John Wayne fires one gun, five Indians fall down. He just went through the whole list of things that as a kid, I'm just, my eyes are getting wider and wider listening. But that kind of culture that I grew up in gave me this insane confidence to call up. As you alluded, man, you know, I took a show person's flair and said, I'm going to open this kitchen, but there's an inauguration coming up. And George Bush Sr. is going to have all these parties. Man, I'm going to get that food. And I called up. And this is another really cool place to branch out. Because when I called up, not only did that take confidence, just to think, of course I can call up the inaugural committee and get their food. But when I finally got that person saying hello, and I knew this was the caterer or the guy in charge who could make the decision, my name was Robert Egger. My voice was an educated white kid's voice. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things that I think the idea itself was profoundly simple. And I think over the years, it was easy for people to grasp. But again, the birth of the kitchen has so many things baked into it that made a success. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, a lot of convincing people that you could donate food, that men and women are homeless could work, that restaurants would do this. But I think the secret sauce of so much of my success is just the fact that, you know, again, I was born the right time, the right place, the right gender and the right skin color. Do your siblings, have, did they adopt that same level of awareness, that self-awareness that you, you have, seems like you've had for a long time? Or is that something that you feel is, when you contrast yourself with the people that you were nurtured around, was that unique? Yeah, it was unique, dude, because again, I had four sisters. So don't forget, I mean, I think any woman in the audience is going to resonate with the fact that while I could get on my bike and ride as far as I want, my sisters couldn't. Where at age, when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, and I could stay out at night, my sisters couldn't. So I don't think my sisters were given the same freedoms. I know they weren't. And it was those freedoms and those that access that I think it continued to kind of stoke the fires of I can do anything that, again, many men of my generation have intrinsically. But I don't think really credit with their successes. I mean, we just saw, for example... Mike Bloomberg on one of the debates say, you know, I worked hard and made billions and it took Bernie to bring up his workers. But again, that idea of just working hard isn't what it takes to make it in America. I mean, you know, again, working hard when you're white is you're already 99% there. Mm. So again, I I don't want to belabor this, but I don't want to ignore and I try my best. and, and, And this has been a big part of my career because not only did I get what I have because of these advantages, But at the same time, it baked into me a sense of obligation that I was going to use anything I received because of this to benefit people beyond me. So I'll give you an example, man. We're we're on this line anyway. My first day, the DC Kitchen opened or it kind of officially launched on Inauguration Day 1989 with the inauguration. And again, what I said earlier, I took my show person's flair because, dude, Think about it. What media outlet in the world could resist some guy in a truck driving around picking up food from inaugurations to feed poor people the next day? Mm. And, you know, as predicted, every media outlet in the world wanted to cover that. And that was from day one, there was this sense of, wow, I have touched something that I didn't know existed, is how much Americans were viscerally frustrated by how much food we threw away. I mean, it's very common to talk about this now, but in 1989, Again, it was a very new construct, and little did I know that almost to a person, Americans were really guilty, felt guilty about the food. So here was this moment where I tapped into this this energy, and literally, the day we opened, media came and it kept coming. I made kind of a self-pact of saying, okay, 
there's people all over this country who are doing similar work. And they're just as smart, if not smarter than I am, but they're never going to get media coverage like this. So I'm going to share whatever I have. And that kind of began what I've oftentimes referred to this kind of 5149 rule of mine, that I was always going to spend 49% of my metaphorical energy and time on my business. But I was going to make sure that whatever I did with that 49% lended itself to a bigger cause. So again, that that has been the benchmark of my model forever. I will only work and contribute to something bigger than myself because I've seen people get lost in this idea of thinking I can solve, pick your issue if my nonprofit just gets more money. And it's like, no, dude, we're not built that way. The larger dominant capitalist society is never going to give us the resources. So rather than trick myself into thinking my little kitchen, as badass as they have been and will remain, that they're not enough. They have to be part of something bigger. And so, again, that's just another example in which I, in where I've tried to take these dreams of my youth and make them part of my everyday life as an adult. Did you ever in your wildest dreams, even with your white privilege and your white male <laughs> access. Did you ever think that you'd have presidents of the United States in your nonprofit and you'd, you'd feed so many hundreds of thousands of mouths through this idea that you got at this on this great patrol that one night with your wife? Well, maybe not that night, but I'll be honest with you, Light. I really, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Yeah. I mean, I could see that because again, I had my own sense of bravado and purpose and drive. But yeah, I mean, dude, there was zero in my upbringing that suggested I couldn't. Zero, nothing. I mean, in fact, quite the opposite. Everything suggested that I could achieve anything I wanted. You know, literally think of that. But if I, if for a white kid in America, a white boy in the 1960s to say, I'm going to be the first man on Mars. Teachers would never say, oh, dude, that's a messed up idea. There is no way. You know, they'd be like, oh, man, that kid's got pluck, got moxie. I like that kid. So again, dude, there was nothing. And you have to understand too, I dreamed of my nightclub having presidents come. Mm. And, you know, so everything I did was based on this idea of, it's funny, it's that movie about the baseball field. If you build it, they will come. Right. Everything I did was was based on that idea of, I'm going to build something that will bring people here. They'll be drawn to it. Mm. I love that. So DC Kitchen, I I mean, we don't have a lot of time to get into all the details around the great story, but you have written about this plenty and you've talked about this plenty, but it ended up, it's still going. It's been 30 years now. You even branched out into Los Angeles. You started a Los Angeles kitchen, which had its own array of challenges and opportunities for growth. And then eventually that LA kitchen ended up closing after how many, how many years was that in operation? About 10 years. You know, it was, it was six of the hardest years. You know, I put my real sweat and blood into that because you know what's interesting, dude? And it's interesting to talk about very briefly, but you know, there was a time in DC Kitchen where I had to make a decision. It's like, you know, I'm a founder. I can sit here and ride this thing forever, or I can be a good founder and split. You know, I did everything I was supposed to do. I created a good board, a good staff, a good reserve, you know, financial reserve, a good business model. I was one of the early pioneers of social enterprise. So DC Kitchen already had its own income stream and ability to hire people. About probably almost 100 cities at the time had taken the idea and made it their own, but had taken this nub of an idea. So when I went to L.A., there was a sense of I'm going to go and I'm going to take all the juice I have and try and draw attention to what I think is going to be one of the most profound issues. It already is, but it hasn't really been recognized. And that's the issue of senior poverty and the staggering number of people who are going to wake up in an America where they're going to live 10 years, 15, 20 years longer than they have money in the bank. And what does that look like, particularly for communities of color? So I went to LA with, again, a, a proven bona fide dreamer sense of next step, only to run into a real buzzsaw of lethargy around the issue of, of aging. And sadly, as, as I did, dude, this has sadly been a benchmark of my career. I've gone so many times to places where I assumed People who would be my allies in doing bold new things end up being my adversaries. And I literally have to spend insanely valuable time working my way around people 
who got lost. You know, I've said this so many times, like, man, nobody wakes up when they're 20 and looks in the mirror and says, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be a boring bureaucrat that stifles innovation at every turn. Yet our world's full of people. And I've always wondered, how did they get so lost? But I've had to spend time getting around people all my career. And sadly, I couldn't in L.A. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my – and frankly, it it was the hardest thing I ever did. Because again, dude, I've been an employer. I made payroll for 30 years without fail. I created thousands of jobs and, and produced millions of meals. And I had to basically admit I can't keep this big old machine that I built with so much promise and love and and hope. I had to close it. And, you know, there was one of these days that any entrepreneur dreads where I had to sit in front of my computer, man, with a message that it was going to go, you know, basically fan out across America. And I had to push send knowing that people were going to get this email. And in my heart, as you can imagine, worrying that the kind of echo that I was going to put my head out the window after I pushed send and hear a reverberation of people saying, damn, Robert Egger fucked up, dude. You know, and I just was so, I literally was physically ill with fear, dude, fear. And I'll be honest with you, the sense of shame is maybe too harsh a word, but there was a sense of like, dude, you know, I failed and I'd never failed. Let me ask you this, before you get into what happened, how long had the writing been on the wall that things were going to go in this direction? Because like you say, you know, you have this confidence, you, you're a very optimistic person, you can convince your way into doing pretty much anything you had done so for 30 years. So how long had you been sitting on that idea and realizing that it's not going to happen? Well, you know, dude, honestly, I'll be direct pretty much since I decided I was going to do it. I mean, I knew what I was walking into. But there was a part of me that felt so much that I was going to cash in all my chips and A, go back to the community where I was a 10-year-old kid and that construction worker confronted me. And like a prodigal son, I was going to return. But I knew because everywhere I went, people would given me tons of money when I said, hey, man, I'm leaving DC Kitchen in good hands and I'm going off and I'm going to do this new gig. And they're like, oh, man, Robert Egger, what are we going to do next, man? Because we got to be in the Robert Egger business. And I'd say, that's great, man, because I'm going to L.A. and I'm going to pioneer what senior meals of the future look like. And I'm going to take imperfect fruits and vegetables and I'm going to really pioneer a plant forward meat as part of the meal, not center of the plate thing. But more importantly, I want to challenge people to see elders in a different light, that if they were going to be upset about wasted food because it had a wrinkle or a bruise or a blemish, shouldn't they be even more profoundly upset that we waste an entire generation of people? because they have a wrinkle or a bruise or a blemish. But to a person, every funder who had been generous to me said, oh, dude, God, I wish we could help, but we don't do seniors. So I knew that I was walking into a very tough, but necessary. Dude, and again, this is my thing. Leaders, in my opinion, you know, there's a difference between a boss and a leader, you know, and I'm a, I'm a bad boss, to be honest with you, but I'm a good leader. And I felt it was my job to take every ounce of juice I had and put it towards something that was mandatory that we see, even if people didn't want to see it. I felt if I could use my energy and kind of entrepreneurial energy and bring new life and more importantly, light to come to a city where the the false idea of beauty emanates from. Hollywood is a place where women are cast out casually at a certain age. And I used kind of a a sense of probability saying women outlive men, women outnumber men. The majority of people who are old in America will be women. How long until there's a revolution in which women, sisters basically stop and say, fuck the beauty myth. You know, fuck your concept of beauty. I'm just as beautiful as I ever was. In fact, I'm more beautiful because I have a belt load of great experience under my weight. You know, you get my point. This was something I'm like, I can use this. This is the perfect place just as D.C., where presidents came and stood side by side with men and women who were homeless at the DC kitchen. Could I utilize the uh, resources of LA the same way? But again, man, like I said, I just, I think I truly underestimated how little people cared, how little money was available for, and how entrenched the ideas around senior meals and the business. Because again, dude, part of my model was I'm going to create a business that will both train people for jobs and create beautiful, healthy meals out of the nonprofit side, 
But the mm. for-profit side will actually get contracts to do congregate meal sites for seniors. And let's uh, go back to my nightclub days. Have you ever been to a senior center recently? I mean, it's, it's bizarre because, you know, you go in and you got to realize the people who are in there right now who are 70, dude, they were 20 in 1968. They were at Woodstock. They were at Wattstack. They were part of this generation. Yet when you go, they're literally playing. They're treating them like they were born in the 1930s. There's all this kind of big band music. And I'm shocked <laughs> because, you know, I look at those senior centers and I see the deepest well of life experience in the history of America. And a generation of people who are still able and willing to be part of something bigger. They just need to be called back home, you know, not mm -hmm. to the 60s, but to that sense of optimism and idealism. So in effect, I went through a phase of, of disowning the hippies mm -hmm. only in my later years to want to help them find their way back to that spirit of the 60s and maybe a little of that activism that made them feel so alive. Talk about what happened after you sent the email that you were closing L.A. Kitchen and what you learned about letting go. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm still letting go. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I can talk. I can talk all pretty about letting go. But, dude, it still hurts. I mean, I'm 62 and I fully anticipated being actively involved the rest of my life till I literally dropped. Yet I had to stop and say, OK, dude, again, going back to say you've had a great run. I mean, every day I look out and see the ripples of my work. I see my great dear friend, Jose Andreas, and the World Central Kitchen, which I'm proud to be on the board of. He's taken the same model to extreme lengths, far beyond I could ever. And no matter where you go in the world, there's people doing these community kitchens now. So I could sit back and kind of chill and, frankly, rest for a minute. But the bigger question was, does the world really need another 62-year-old white dude trying to stay relevant? I mean, I have a lot to contribute, but should I be willing to stand aside now and say, I will, instead of being a leader, which I've been all my life, maybe now it's my time to serve. In fact, you and I talked earlier in our joyous friendship about a moment I had in Peru where I had led a hike up into the mountains only to fall back and rely on an older woman at the very back of the line to lead me over the hill. And that's when I really kind of embrace this construct of the first can follow and the last can lead. And so this is my time to follow. And I'm spending just about all of my efforts now are trying to say I have an incredible stockpile of knowledge and I have tremendous ideas about policies that will enable a younger generation to avoid some of the pitfalls I hit in Los Angeles. And I want to be a servant to a younger generation of leaders, whether it's identifying them and trying to get them attention whether it's being a connector, whether it's just being an ear. I was shocked when I hit send on that email light because I thought I was going to be embarrassed. But I was ended up being incredibly buoyed by the insane level of love that came pouring out of all kinds of corners. And again, dude, don't get me wrong. I know I've had a killer fucking ride. You know, I know I've done good work and I've tried to be a good friend along the way. But I was unprepared for how generous people were. When I assumed there'd be snickering and, and kind of, or silence. So, like I said, it was hard. There was a lot of affirmation in the pain of closing. And there's still an interesting process I'm going through as we speak, brother, on letting go and not being as, as there's a phrase in the aging business called a PIP, a previously important person. And how do you overcome that need to be the center of attention or to be out front or to be heard all the time? and find a new voice in, in kind of being a humble servant to others as they begin their journey. Mm -hmm. So now you've relocated to New Mexico and you're giving talks. Are you writing anything these days? Yeah, no, it's funny, dude. You know, we moved to New Mexico because this is where my wife and sister-in-law are from. And, and, you know, we've lived together as kind of a family. I'm a big believer in family and, and taking care of each other. And my in-laws moved in with us and passed at home when we were in DC. But so anyway, um, we're living in a small rural town of 300. And I've been actually intrigued, man, because I've been experimenting with small community meals. I went to a beautiful little fiesta here and watched them in community eat side by side. You know, my wife and sister and I, we served the meals and I was the MC. And it was, again, here were old and young addicts 
bikers, you know, people who live out and, you know, super libertarians, don't bother me, all in this little firehouse. And I was watching thinking, man, dude, I've spent my entire career producing meals, but they've been served in places where you either had to self-identify as poor and stand in line, Mm. or you had to be old because this is where old people go, or a kid because, well, that's where we feed kids, versus this idea of the community eating together. And it, it was another one of those light bulb moments. And so, you know, I'm not trying to start anything new or I'm not going to launch another nonprofit, but I've been very intrigued by this idea of community meals and how a very simple meal where a community comes together and the potential for maybe an older person to find, a, you know, somebody who might drive into the grocery store once a week or somebody who might mentor their kid or an addict might find in somebody, a sobriety buddy will help them take that important step away from meth or heroin or whatever. So like I said, man, I'm writing a new chapter, but I'm not necessarily putting pen to paper. Mm, I love it. I want to acknowledge you, Robert, for having what I feel is one of the most important traits on top of confidence and optimism, which is just curiosity and looking at the potential of something and having enough curiosity to really take meaningful steps in the direction of that potential. And it seems like you're still just as curious today as you've ever been. When I think back to your most enjoyable activity as a child, which is being on wheels, being able to maneuver obstacles and having fun along the way, it seems like you're still doing that to a large degree. And it's starting to take shape in the next phase, whatever that's going to look like eventually. But it doesn't seem like you you ought to see the smile on my face, man. That was a beautiful summation, man. I think it's been a beautiful little loop. We've walked together this hour. Yeah, Uh, it's been it's been a joy, my my friend. You're one of my favorite people. And every conversation I have with you, I both walk away from it happier, a little bit more grounded and really feel like I've talked with a great friend. Thank you. And before we sign off, I do want to <laughs> I do want to mention the name of your latest sort of branding, fuck shit up. Can you just talk a little bit about, well, about what, what you mean by that? I a box with that. But, you know, my wife, I need a new email address. And my wife's like, well, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, well, I'm going to keep fucking shit up. And lo and behold, there it was. So, but, <laughs> dude, I tell people all the time because people call me and they're like, oh, dude, I want to fuck shit up too. And it's like, dude, stop. Don't mistake those words with anger. Understand that whether it was, you know, Harriet Tubman, whether it was John Kennedy, John Coltrane, all the people you admire, they all wanted to fuck shit up. They just said it, maybe said it different. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. I have a dream. It's Dr. King saying, we need to fuck some shit up. You know, Mm -hmm. I've just chosen a kind of profane way to say it, but Mm -hmm. baked in there is the same deeply American idea of let's make things better. Right. How can people find you? Are you engaging with the public in preferable ways? Are you on Instagram, Twitter? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Robert Egger. That's E-G-G-E-R. I'm at Robert Egger on Twitter, Instagram. You know, if you're of the mood, fucking shit up. I have a website and I'm easy to find. I'm just R Egger at fucking shit up dot net. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again, Robert. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that the listeners of this episode got a lot of inspiration from this which is the right on so it's a joy to share some time with you i'll see you soon man absolutely thank you so much thank you so much for listening to my interview with robert egger i hope you have a new appreciation for repurposing and all the ways that we can use what we have now to simply take that next step and by taking the next step that's how we get the clues for the step after that in the meantime while you're out there taking your steps Make sure that you're also subscribed to At the End of the Tunnel so you can hear even more amazing stories about regular folks just like me and you who are overcoming all kinds of odds to help people and to be of service to the world. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. You can find links to everything that Robert and I discussed in the show notes below. Please also share this conversation with your friends who are struggling to find their own inspiration or start their own movement. And I will see you back here next week, same day, same time. Thanks again for listening.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.